0: And what I've basically found is, is this, we leverage time differently when we're in true alignment with our purpose, mm-hmm. you know, and with our joy. So we all have the same amount of hours in the day as Beyonce, they say, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. But, and if we do, the question is then how do you leverage that time? And I find that I can, create within 60 seconds far more than I think that I can if I'm doing it with joy and with purpose, right? Not with the annoyance, the frustration that comes in when you're trying to manage too many things coming at you. So that's created, um, knowing that has created a set of of rituals and practices that keep me in a state of flow.
1: Hey guys, I'm Miles and I'm Ruthie and welcome to the unspoken podcast where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do.
2: Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world, but sadly we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it.
1: So we would love for you to join us and listen along and we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken.
0: Make up fake make them all laugh Come on, someone
1: take off your mask. It's nice to me
2: Today on the podcast, we have Sarah Lewis Sarah is an assistant professor of history of art and architecture and African-American studies at Harvard University Her scholarship on race, art, and culture has been published in academic journals as well as The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Art Forum. Lewis was the guest editor of the Vision and Justice issue of Aperture, which received the 2017 Affinity Award for Critical Writing and Research from the International Center of Photography, and is the author of The Rise, a book about failure and creativity. Previously, she held curatorial positions at the Museum of Modern Art, New York, and the Tate Modern London.
1: Wow, Dr. Sarah Lewis, she is a powerhouse. She is one of the brightest uh, minds and one of the most powerful voices, I think, of our generation. Her book was incredible. Um, She influences so many young people and also influences so many influencers. Mm -hmm. I am lucky enough to call her a friend, and every time I sit with her, I'm blown away by her intellect and her compassion and empathy towards the world and underserved populations and causes, and she is just doing amazing things, and I cannot wait for you to hear from her and learn more about where she came from and what she's up to. Well, here we are, you guys. Excited to be here in the house with Dr. Sarah Lewis. Thank you
2: for having me. (laughs) Uh, So happy to have you. This is such a treat. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you better. Likewise. yeah. We're so
1: honored to, uh, honestly, to be able to catch you for a window because you're really busy. You've got a lot going on and I know we're going to unpack and hear more about that. But for me, um, I don't feel like I'm... Interviewing somebody I admire, uh, although I am, I feel like I'm talking to a friend mm-hmm. because we haven't got to connect in the last few years because our our seasons have been just moving fast. But uh, we got to meet several years ago through some mutual friends, and I was just drawn to you. I'm sure, like a lot of people are, very quickly. I was like, I am fascinated by this woman as a human, but also as just uh, who you are and what you do. There's just layers, a lot of layers, and you got a deep soul, and your intellect clearly speaks for itself. Um, But I'm excited for our audience. I know the world knows you through talks that you've done and books that you've written, which we'll get to. But I'm excited for the world, our world, to get to know you more because I just think you're such an important voice Mm. in culture today.
0: Miles, thank you so much. It means a great deal. I've got such respect for the work you're doing personally and through on-site. So it's really an honor for me. Oh,
1: thank you. Well, we usually love starting by just taking us back. You know, we're... Where did this all get started?
0: Oh, how long do we have? Oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, Miles, the work you know me through, the, the writing of The Rise and now the work at Harvard, um, in part began because I've always been fascinated by and I'm still so curious about just the path of becoming our fullest selves. How do we become the people that we dream of who we don't even know that we fully can be, you know? I uh, grew up here in New York City and I think because of that, I had at a very young age a sense of the possible around me all the time and was fascinated by process and arriving at these achievements that would take people to New York. I, I grew up right by the United Nations, and so I would wow. see everyone coming through literally blocks away. And wow, that is something. Yeah, my playground literally the swing set was right next to the United Nations. Wow, no so, way. Yes. wow. Yeah, that's my, my backyard. And so the international news became uh, for me the daily kind of bread and butter of what mm. you use to just construct your day and to consider what a life could be like. So that animated my imagination at a really young age. So there I was, you know, in New York, really independent at a very young age too, going to school in my own (laughs) fourth grade, fifth grade, and became curious about the life stories of those who inspired me. I didn't think that, um, I didn't have, I should I'll leave it at that. and And I so I would start to just read different narratives, um, fiction, nonfiction, and I would just find that what I was not taught about the journey of becoming and success. I found that the very kind of foundations of what led to those individuals' so-called rises was was not something that we typically discuss. Mm. you know And I became fascinated by how. Conversions and transformations occur, and oftentimes, as I have written about and, and now believe firmly, they come from seeing challenges as opportunities and finding the gifts that come from these difficult circumstances. And so, it it began really in just being both inspired for my own life and for those that I'm hoping will come in the generations that follow um, stories that can become guides for creating the lives that we we want to and sometimes don't dare to dream that we can live.
2: You You don't even know it's a possibility.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's
2: something so beautiful about being shown, like there's something so much more and there's so much more out there that, I mean... I. I love that. I grew up in a teeny tiny town, and most people don't leave our town, you know? So I was given the gift from my family of like getting to leave and travel out. And I was like, wait, there's people that don't look like me, and there's people that talk very different from me and have such different lives. And just even just that kind of exposure is so powerful and so beautiful. It was such a gift to me. It is. Yeah. I mean, the, the, um,
0: well, I, we call it diversity, but that's not even the right word. The the way in which the world sort of descends upon, creates New York, mm. uh, offered that to me. Yes. And as soon as I moved away from it, I realized that that was a gift. Mm. So it, it happened for me later on. So I know what you're,
1: what you're describing. So was, yeah. so I'm curious, say more about that, because I know this is something that you're a respected voice on, but when you say diversity is not really the word.
0: Yes. Well, um, so yes, I do a lot of work now looking at the function of art and culture for expanding our notion of who counts and who belongs in society in historical context and a contemporary context. So that's a lot of what I write about and teach at Harvard. So when I say the word diversity is not the right word, what I mean by that is the term itself, um, diversity, somehow suggests that we need to change a current model that we somehow need to, and that the current model that is not diverse is the norm. You know, And so lately, there's been a shift to using words like inclusion, uh, which is sort of similar. Um, but ultimately, I think we all want to have and normalize a a set of voices that represent the full extent of life on this planet around us. That's what we want, right? And to have as a default one group as being... Uh, normally in place and uh, is what we're trying to move away from so that everyone is is welcome in in various spaces. Uh, At Harvard, one of my main classes, just to give you an example, it's probably the least likely place you'd imagine this, but is a room that has no racial majority at all. I couldn't believe it. Wow. At Harvard, right? Organically, it's not as if we've engineered this. Right. So equal parts White, black, Asian-American, Latino. And imagine what it means to teach that kind of mm-hmm. group. You can't uh, centralize any one experience over the other, right? So it is a daily reminder of the work we need to do for the generations to come because that's their norm.
1: But I want to get back to that because I got I got mm-hmm. some questions about <laughs> uh, inclusion, diversity, race. Yeah. One's personal to a conversation we had a few years ago. Okay. And... But take us back to that little girl that played across from the UN and <laughs> got exposed in such a cool way to uh, just culture and who knows what else, uh, and had this wild imagination of what could be based on the city and this imprint, maybe your family. But where, where'd you go from there?
0: Well, where'd I go from there? So I, uh, <laughs> I grew up in midtown Manhattan really a bustling part of the city, right? It's just commerce and diplomats and everything all at once. And I went to the uh, all-girls school for 13 years on the Upper East Side, the kind of place that just like like Harvard where I went for college too, um, made made me feel that I could really do anything. Mm-hmm. And that, that was such a blessing. That was uh, extraordinary. So fifth grade through 12th grade, made friends for life, Sisters, all of them, godmother to my one of my good friends' daughters, and I love that that experience. Uh, and that was an experience that did start to teach me about the importance of inclusion too. You know, it was we can get into that. Um, I went to Harvard and then went to the UK and studied there at Oxford. I'd received a fellowship to go abroad, the Marshall Scholarship fellowship, um, and that funded three years of study and gave me a salary so that I could dream and have that supported, right? And I lived there right after 9-11. So it also charged that current moment with, and I think tasked us all with asking what our purpose was, you know, how could we be contributory citizens, really? And I was 22 asking those questions. I also lost um, a number of friends in sh- short succession within the two years of the three that I was there. Mm. And that, of course, both shattered me and then let me put myself back together a- in a way that let me ask the question, you know, how will you live today in a way that uh, both honors the lives of those who are not here, those who don't have this time, but also makes your whatever I do on, on the planet, a value such that is a bit more beautiful than when I got here. So so that, those are the questions I was asking myself at the age of 22 and 23 and 24. And I found that the arts were going to be the arena and the platform that I would kind of play in. But
1: Just real quick on that. Yeah. that uh, did When you referenced you lost some friends, was that in
0: 9-11? One of them, mm-hmm. the first actually. So she was uh, a friend that I knew from being here in that K through 12 all-girls school. And uh, she, was, she was fantastic. Um, and we played field hockey together. So, you know, that bond you get and being four years on a team together is like none other. And, yeah, she passed in the towers. Mm. Um, and then I... Had a one of my closest friends who I shared a birthday with, uh, and just was one of those friends who really sucked the marrow out of every kind of moment of the, of the day, and she left you more energized and excited about life whenever you're in her presence. And she passed, um, but she was very much like my guardian angel. After going through the grief process, I don't feel that as a loss. I feel her very much with us even now, and and many other other friends. But they were all young.
1: What was what was her name? Anna. Yeah. Anna Sue. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's just fantastic. So there's a lot I could say about that because it really did put me on actually the way you're asking me this question, I hadn't quite thought of it this way before, but a spiritual journey at the very same time that I had defined my own career path, and that gave me a kind of fortitude that it really sustained me and that I draw upon as a reservoir still today, you know. So they're very much intertwined.
1: You described that you went through that as a shattering and then and you rebuilt.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: What was the rebuilding like?
0: Well, it, it reminds me of this um, quote that's become a kind of koan for me: the Ernest Hemingway quote. You know, all of us are shattered. Some of us remain stronger in the broken places.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: that's effectively what happened to me. You know, I. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. I have a friend. Well, it's not funny. It's actually profound. I have a friend who, it's a dear friend. She had this injury, it's, it will relate, I promise. <laughs> she had this injury on her forehead. She had a, um, an injury in childhood that put some scar tissue there. And one night after we were having dinner, she got into a cab. I had a premonition that she shouldn't get in this cab, and she did. And it, the cab had a, a horrible accident on the road, and she banged her head right in the place where that scar tissue was. And she survived, and the doctor said that if she hadn't had that, that injury, that scar tissue, she wouldn't have. It was that. And I always, it it feels like an analogy for what that kind of shattering and rebuilding can do. It gives you that kind of fortitude and resilience. But the question is, do you have an experience like the one you created at OnSite for those who are going through it? Do you have the pastors who will understand that grief, grief perhaps needs a new narrative so that you can rebuild? And I think I was fortunate to... Trust my kind of you know, really young instincts of, about what I needed in that process mm. And so I ended up, and I, I, I think loved most writing about this idea of surrender in the book, but I ended up holding on to something that she gave me as a mm, kind of a life lesson uh, as a way to see the beauty in, in the grief. Um, she has she has a pretty dramatic, Uh, story in terms of, you know, how she lost her life. Um, She ended up really surrendering in the most profound way. She was babysitting her young uh, cousin, five years old, who couldn't swim and she saw he had jumped into a pool and he was drowning and uh, she couldn't swim herself. But there she is. She's just graduated from Harvard. She's entering into a JD MBA program at Harvard Law. She's engaged to her college sweetheart and she jumps into this pool to save her cousin knowing that she can't swim and she does. She saves him but she dies Mm -hmm. and just I mean I get full talking about it because it's the um, the clarity of that knowing in that moment that we are all connected and so it, it doesn't even matter <laughs> what she's about to do, if his life is as important as hers, <laughs> and it's as if she knows that. <laughs> and so the idea of surrender, in the most profound way, became something that her life really challenged me to consider about how I might lead my own, and it's it's a gift that's irreplaceable. So.
1: That that is. Yeah, I've got chills, and I do watch you do that over and over, even from afar, when we don't communicate. In a sense, she stepped into her divine calling at that time, conscious or unconscious. Boom, you know, went for it, and I see, and it's a risk. And and I see you stepping into your divinity over and over again, and taking risk and disrupting different spaces and speaking into them in a cool way. And anyway, am just
2: thank you. No, it was, I think, one of the highlights. Mm. That's such a beautiful thing when we are so deeply impacted by someone's life and, and you know and they're no longer here. Like I have a really dear friend who was so impactful to me in college. And I remember when we were in college people be like, y'all are so much alike. And I was like, no. Like her kindness um, and her beauty and what she came forward with was not to get anything back. She just wanted to – she knew how loved she was, and she wanted to just love people. And at that time in my life, I needed people's approval to feel okay. And she ended up um, passing from a drunk driver, mm-hmm. and I was in a really bad car accident. But, like, on paper, my my injuries were way worse than hers. And then here she she doesn't survive, and I did. And I remember years ago I had, like, a complete nervous breakdown, and I would just sit there and I would think, like, Laura should be here. Like she would be out changing the world. And I'm here like wasting my, I had lived in my bed for like seven years from chronic pain and handled it. I mean, I have so much grace for that girl now, but I had handled it very poorly for a very long time. And, and it's been so interesting and so beautiful to change that narrative. Like I, Laura was a gift a profound gift to me and everyone that was lucky enough to come into her presence, and for some reason that I might not understand, the side of heaven or whatever's up there or out there or down, whatever, I am still here, but I carry her with me, and I I like to think like if anyone feels even like pieces of being seen and being loved. She taught me. I watch her. She, I carry that and she's within me and they're getting pieces of Laura. And if you experience like, you know, if someone feels like held and just cared for, I'm like, Laura taught me that. You're getting pieces of Laura. And it's such a, I don't know, I've changed that story. For some reason I'm here and Laura's not, Um, but her spirit Feels Like what you were saying before, you carry them with you. And like her goodness lives, I feel her goodness. And I want to honor her life with what I've been given, you know? And so I just love how you said that and how you described that because I, I get that so much. And like when we lose someone that's so young, she was 19, you know, and that's her prime. And I'm like, she would have done so much good in this world. But I can't question it. She, you know, I'm here and I want to honor that and I want to hopefully make people feel loved like Laura did, you know? And so it's interesting when those things, those formative years, those things happen and you're just like, what in the world? But what do you do with that? Exactly.
0: Exactly. Well, you are making people feel loved. I can feel it. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful.
2: You too. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: I had no idea we would talk about this today. It's really um, sort of amazing (laughs) that we are. Um, I should share one other anecdote with you about this. This idea of being wanting to to know that you're not alone on the path Mm -hmm. is so important. It's also what I think makes a kind of gathering like this, even just us speaking together, but with those who are listening to an act that's about more than... A podcast, or anything, you know, it's about how it is that we nourish one another. Yeah. Um, I had this experience, though, that got me to understand that when I was brought low by grief with with Anna's passing and the compound effects of of everyone's passing, um, my friends and I remember being here in New York, and I this will give you a sense of just how low I was. I I really was kind of arguing with God really. <laughs> and I, I um, was shopping for groceries and about to go to my then boyfriend's house and it's maybe a 30 block distance so I was taking a taxi. and I remember this was how low I was sort of made by grief I sort of said to God, okay, I need a sign to know that you're with me that Anna's still with me. I'm going to um, because I don't have enough money in my pocket for a cab for this distance. This is so complicated. I'm going to know it's you if you help me here. I want you to give me a sign that lets me know when it's the right time to hail the cab so that I'll have the exact amount of money I need to get home. This is so complicated. I'm sure you can't do this, you know. So I start walking and almost immediately uh, upon saying that, I get this clear sign. You know when you receive something and it's not you creating it? It was that kind of a sign. And so I turned around and I hailed the cab and I noticed that the taxi driver didn't turn on the meter, and I thought, oh, God, that's not a big enough sign. That happens all the time in New York. And then I said to the driver, you know, you didn't turn on on your meter. I I thought I should let you know. And he turns around, and he said to me, I'll never forget the look on his face. He said, you know, this would frustrate a lot of people, but when you have God in your life, none of this matters. What? (sighs) And he showed me this prayer book that he used to meditate upon at stoplights. This was a New York City cab driver. Mm. And and he said, so, you know, um, why don't you just pay me whatever you have <laughs> and that'll be fine. Wow. I, I, I just I mm. had no more. I mean, so there are things we can't explain. Yeah that's statistically impossible to have created, but not possible through the realms that we know really kind of govern, or at least I believe govern um, so much of what we do and everything that we do, really. So companionship on the path, yes. Yes.
2: There's times where I am in the depths and I need my friends to be mirrors of truth to me and to be reminders. And then there's times when they're there and I'm like, oh, but here's what I know to be true about you and about me and about the world, you know, and we get to live side by side and be that for each other. Like I needed to hear that reminder that you just gave us. And that is such a beautiful gift that you've given us, you know, and that's, so often we see these things and we're like, oh, that girl is, she has such a light. But I'm like, why would I not say that? Who is ever bummed by a compliment? Like, get out of (laughs) here, you know? Like, if you see something that's beautiful, like, again, like what I was just saying, like, when that becomes a focus, when I'm looking for that in people and in things and places, I find it everywhere. Absolutely. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. In the most... Minute smallest things, I'll be like, it'll take my breath away, you know? And if I go in with the other mindset, I also can find all (laughs) the broken things. But there's just, there's something so sweet about like really looking for the goodness in humans and believing that there's goodness there. And so often I can just put someone in a, you know, in a box and be like, this is who they are. And then what a disservice to the human spirit and being. And I'm so different than I used to be. And I'm so grateful that people didn't give up on me.
1: I think it's uh, so well said, but I think it's so important that we stop and speak truth into the unspoken parts of our story along the way and take time for stuff like this. Like, you know, we got like uh, five minutes into your story, which is was is beautiful i was sitting there thinking I and mean, how can this highlight reel get bigger and we were just <laughs> in the uk at that point and this rising art star and and uh i want to pick that back up sure. and see where you went from there because i sure. love what you're doing now but to stop at a moment and honor the parts that weren't highlight reel that were the, the in which is a lot about what you wrote about in the rise about other people's stories but to know somebody who a lot of i'm sure young women just people in general look up to um to hear that uh, you've been there too, in your own way, that you've overcome adversity. And it's just, thank you for, for sharing that.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you for letting us see Anna and learning about her. I'm so grateful that we got to learn about her yeah. and meet her today. Same here.
0: You know, it's, it's the reason that I wrote that book was precisely for this reason. If we just share the kind of polished, finished veneer of what we think achievement looks like or success, we rob ourselves of those guideposts we need. Yeah. Understanding of process that we need to help one another and ourselves. Mm. So this is what the book is about. This is also just the way that I, I must live now. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can do highlight reel, too. That's fun. You know, there's, <laughs> a lot, there's a lot more highlights. We'll
1: make that a small part of it. But yeah. it is, that's something that should be affirmed and celebrated, too. So... Yeah. Rising star in the art world comes out of the UK. And what what happened next?
0: <laughs> what happened next? That um, let's see. So I was living in the UK, and it was it became like a paradise, really, you know. And I didn't fully want to leave, <laughs> but uh, a guy brought me back in part, but really it was the job that brought me back uh, at the Museum of Modern Art. I wanted to curate here. I wanted to be close to family and be home. So I, I got this job. It was sort of one in a couple thousand sort of odds of getting at the Museum of Modern Art and applied cold, sent my resume in to like info at, you know, moma.com. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you really? I really you didn't wow. like know anybody and like, that's amazing. That's I did not know incredible. that. That's incredible.
0: And I'm, I need to put this out there publicly because people always think I, I somehow knew a patron or someone. There's a people confuse me for being the daughter of a patron in the art world. A lot of the same last name. That's not me. That's not me. <laughs> First, I just said, no, I didn't know anyone at MoMA. I was, you know, a kid. I just graduated from school. I did it though. Take a class with a former curator at MoMA. His name is Robert Storr. <laughs> Talk about the way the universe works. As it turns out, the job that I was applying for, unbeknownst to me, was working for him.
2: Wow. <laughs> yeah.
0: He had come back. He had to curate the show, he had put into motion before he left on um, this legendary painter, Elizabeth Murray. And so he he hadn't selected actually the application, it just so happened that it worked out that way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what brought me back, this dream job uh, at MoMA. So...
1: What happened with the guy? (laughs) (laughs) Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's somewhere. He's, <laughs> somewhere, he's alive. He's
1: alive somewhere. I've got a few of those too, like yeah. they're somewhere. They took me here, but yeah, Yeah, part reason. of the
0: journey. They're part of the journey, yeah. No, he... So MoMA was a good three-year process of discovery and learning. I was the kind of baby curator effectively in the, in the ranks of things and loved it. Um, I grew up down the street from MoMA about five blocks from MoMA.
2: What?
1: (laughs) Wow.
0: Yeah, heart of the Gracious! It was a homecoming in a nice way. Wow. Yeah,
1: yeah. And this may be a dumb question, but uh, especially for somebody as esteemed as you are in the art world, but what all would a curator do at that level? Mm
0: -hmm. You know, the curatorial process is pretty mysterious to people. Okay, so the Latin of the term comes from the, the root, you know, curare, to care for You're caring for this incredible collection, Mm. effectively, is what you're doing. So that involves determining which portions are going to come on display for the general public. Whenever you go to a museum, you're seeing, on average, 10% to 1% of the entire collection of that museum. So who determines what narratives are brought forward through the selections you make from the larger whole? That's the curator's job. The next, you know, is about acquisitions, determining what will also come into the collection in the future, and then also being the public face for the institution and making sure that people understand the history of, of the art on display. Uh, there's a ton of admin, too. There are a ton of things you'll, that aren't glamorous that you have to do. That involves the baby curator, typically. <laughs> <laughs> as other things. Um, but it's, it's an extraordinary place to learn. I mean, the Museum of Modern Art has the renowned collection. So when you are 24 as i was and have that as your training ground it gives you a great springboard to really go anywhere do anything
1: so what what made you you know you're at the top of the game in that world and that must have been such a cool experience to to be at that level but then it seems like you've continued to evolve all your skill set into uh how to help through your writing and through art how to help evolve culture and people become the best versions of themselves and what, what do you think is in you that, that drives you to do that with all of your skill set?
0: I mean, the inspiration Anna, is, is certainly one. The inspiration, therefore well, the inspiration for all of my work to think through how it is that we can become our fullest selves comes from my grandfather, mm-hmm. who was an artist, and who would have been thrilled that I was at MoMA, who, who uh, passed when I was in college. He, he grew up also in New York City in Brooklyn. Ultimately lived in Philadelphia. I love Philly too. But he, he made me want to consider this idea because of his life story. I mean, the short version of The Longer is that he became an artist and a jazz musician for unusual, means, for unusual reasons that confused me for a while. He, he had this experience in high school here in 1926 in history class in the 11th grade when he was asking just a simple question. He wanted to know why the history textbooks didn't represent the world the way that he saw it in New York City. Mm -hmm. You know, it's deep segregation at that time in America, so you can imagine what the textbooks are like. So he's asking this question of the teacher, and the answer he received about why the history textbooks didn't represent the world the way that he saw it here in New York City was that the rest of the world that wasn't there simply hadn't done enough to merit inclusion in those textbooks. And he kept asking that question, and he refused to accept the answer that he was given, and so he was expelled for his impertinence, so-called impertinence, right? 1926. And he never went back to high school. He never got a college degree, GED college degree, but he became this extraordinary artist, putting into those genre scenes that he would create the very images he wanted to find in those textbooks and knew that he could find in those textbooks. He went on to play back up with Count Basing, Duke Ellington as a jazz musician. But it surprised me that he wouldn't have become a politician or an activist, I I mean, after that kind of an experience. Why turn to the arts? But it occurred to me that, of course, the arts have so much to say about how it is that we construct a society in which we all know that we count. Mm. Yeah, and how these unusual circumstances, the kind that he had, difficult circumstances, actually help us flourish into who we're supposed to become. Mm. You know? mm. With that orientation, my my grandfather, Shadrach Emanuel Lee, is his name. I, I'm named my initials at least after him, Sarah Elizabeth Lewis. I he is a North Star very much. Yeah. So and let me not just look at the arts as a kind of arena that I could have fun in, but as a, a place with real weight, yes. you know, that could let us understand how it is that we we're supposed to become and think about our lives creatively in a holistic sense. So it, it made me hungry for different kinds of opportunities. So curating became one of many things i wanted to do. You know, yes. so that's led uh. to writing, uh, led to speaking. Uh but teaching now, and and who knows what next. So.
2: And it's so beautiful to see how his curiosity also passed down. You know, asking questions of like, why is it this way? Like, who said this is the way? I mean, it feels like that's such a huge part of what you're doing. You're asking a lot of sometimes hard questions and really digging in. Like that curiosity is come down the line in such a beautiful way. It's interesting. I had never thought of that as
0: the sort of spiritual inheritance of being his granddaughter. That's Mm. right. It is the questions. Uh, I mean, research is a journey of asking these questions constantly. This uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist that I I interviewed, Andre Geim, won the Nobel Prize in 2010, and he says about research, sometimes I say I don't uh, research, I only search, you know. Mm. Mm.
2: I love that.
0: Oh, yes. This is what it's about. And yes. When you're curating, when you're doing work that's about presenting an answer, you can't always ask the questions. You can't always let that be the driving force behind what you do. So I needed other things. Mm. I still love curating though. I still do it. But yeah.
1: Now you, you're you're teaching at Harvard. Yeah. Not many people can say that. I'm a Harvard professor. Uh, yeah. What lights you up most about that role? Mm.
0: I couldn't possibly just say one thing, but there are so many. Um, but I think it's, it's both that I wake up every day feeling the privilege of being on this Olympic squad of minds that are all deeply committed and on the leading edge of their field, advancing knowledge, truth it, in it. But also taking the time to inspire their colleagues to do the same. It's an extraordinary culture. Wow. In that context, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
0: there's a deep sense of just in, of integrity with the work and lack of envy too, such that you really can fly amongst one another. It's that's one reason. But but the other, as an educator, as a teacher, is that. It, I, I love feeling as if I can be contributory every day, that I can offer what I hope will enhance both lives and the collective work that we're all trying to do on this, this planet um, in the little way that I can. So it's, it's one of the few kind of platforms that lets you do that on a consistent basis. And I love that. <sighs> yeah. I never thought I would be at Harvard as a professor. I was never in my mind's eye is a dream. Even when I was getting the PhD at, at Yale, uh, so I, after MoMA, I, I got the PhD at Yale and uh, it came to me, this job. Wow. So I thought I'd go back to the art world as a curator, but this this job was created basically uh, for me. It was, wow. I had a fellowship when I was writing my dissertation. Um, I had a fellowship at Harvard as I was writing my dissertation and was about to go on to the market interviewing for jobs elsewhere and gave a talk as we all had to do as fellows and it led to my giving a job talk as they call it. Wow. wow. And got the job, yeah, that they gismet. had created. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. total kismet. So now I work alongside the professors who taught me
2: wow. as a student. That's yeah. Yeah. Incredible! It is pretty incredible. Wow! Yeah. Such a full circle, yeah. beautiful, and to go from—you are asking these really hard questions, and you're bringing things to the forefront that are like we need to see and we need to hear, and it's a really beautiful thing. And I'm just like I'm very proud of you, and very honored that I get to like learn from you, and that your students get to learn from you in this world, like. I know you have so much to teach us and it's incredible. Thank
0: you. You know, it's, that, is, I mean, that is the true answer. I'm teaching at Harvard the very material that my grandfather was expelled for asking mm-hmm. about and believing was valid. Is yeah. What everyone should understand, that we all count, that we all belong. Yes. So that, that's the most sort of electric experience. The culture at Harvard is one thing, but it's the opportunity that I have um, that's been generations in the making. Yeah. That's the most profound.
2: And yeah. also speaking to like, we have come long way, but obviously there's still massive gaping yeah. problems in that world. Oh, yeah. Huge. And it's oh, not, yeah. I think some people are like, oh, that was just back then. That's not a... Are you kidding me? Like oh my it's gosh, no, I... so prevalent. It is so... And so that's why I just... Like your voice is so important. It it matters. It's so... Like we need to be reminded and this needs to come to the forefront of like this is what's happening and this is very real today, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah.
0: I I think I should say, I mean, really just to be frank, I also love being... A, a young black woman who's a professor at Harvard too, frankly. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It does a lot of the work of representational justice that I teach Mm -hmm. about. The fact that even in coming here to see you today that I am quite positive that there's not one person who assumed that that was my job, that I'm a Harvard professor, Mm -hmm. you know, speaks to the work we need to do in terms of realigning this nexus of of power ultimately and identity really. I'll I'll give you an example that I was on a panel with three colleagues at Harvard and I invited my students. It was a large conference and the panel, it just so happens, was comprised of four black women. We were all black women, all professors at Ivy League schools, all, all with PhDs from Yale, actually, from the same advisor. And one of my students at the end of the panel asked me... The question I couldn't believe was a true one. She she said, I I couldn't hear the bios. Are you all professors? She's a black woman who's a student at at Harvard, you know, that's her conditioning, right? So it's also just an embodied um, model, I think, that I I Mm. offer too that's not lost on me. Sometimes I I forget that because I have... There are lots of other, you know, black women who are professors at Harvard, black men. I have extraordinary colleagues. but it's, it's work and yeah. the visuality of my doing this work in the public realm, the minds that I hope to shift mm. about what's possible is part of what inspires the journey too.
1: I echo what Ruthie said about the importance of your voice. I got to experience it. I referenced it earlier, but when you came down to see what I was doing as a young entrepreneur, I was excited and scared to death You know about some of where we were and how we were evolving and I meet a lot of interesting, fun people and some become friends and some just become acquaintances and, but not many. And, and often they'll say, "What well, you do sounds so cool. And I'll say, yeah, you should come see it sometime. And maybe 3% will follow up and be like, yeah, I actually want to. And you did. You, know, you followed up, you came, you, you know, we had this, this best time showing you around. And you spoke this beautiful truth about seeing me in what I was doing and how I was showing up and you felt like it was important in the world. And in the middle of that, you spoke another firm truth, but in a gentle way um, about what I needed to improve on, which is the area we're talking about. It's like we're trying to do something that's important in the world and it feels there weren't people of color there in the way that there needed to be. And, but I'll never forget it's planted a seed in me that is still evolving today so much so that progress is happening, not at the pace that I'd, I'd like it to. But I, I've i never really told you that, but I really credit you uh, having the courage to step into that conversation with me in a way that I really heard it and I got it um, to how I've evolved as a human, but also as a leader with my organization. And it's still very important all the way to it. We, we may have had one of the most important conversations about diversity last week in one way that I feel like okay not only are we making progress but we're going to make progress. So I just sometimes you never know what a word, what an affirmation, what curiosity, what coming down to see. And thank you for that. I know you probably do that for hundreds of people but you did it for me and I'm grateful.
0: Oh, Miles I had no idea. Uh, it was such a privilege to come and to see the extraordinary work you're doing at, at on-site and I uh, I know the day is coming that I'm going to get to write the chapter about you and, 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 the, <laughs> and the work. <laughs> um, but it was uh, so, so memorable. But I, that moment you're describing, I remember so vividly. I remember where we were even. the And thinking through too about whether I should say what I felt in my heart was, was just needing to be said at that moment. But I said it because I, I, you have this extraordinary capacity um, to to see people not just as they are, but as they could be. Mm. That's that's your work or as they are becoming, you know. Mm. And I, I knew that because of how you also received me as we first met, you know. So I felt comfortable making that that statement. But I also I think in hindsight probably did it because I know you're a leader, you know. Mm. So and it was going to impact, hopefully, not just on site, but your entire industry, so to speak, or the entire field mm. that you're working in. You know? uh,
1: so, thank you.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah,
1: beautiful. I did want to ask. We work with a lot of influential people who are making an impact in the world, and it can be a taxing experience. I mean, it comes um, with sacrifice. It comes with travel and time and uh, a lot of hours, as as you know. And it seems like the better you get at it, the more opportunities you get. And I've worked with so many and I've experienced it a little bit myself where uh, you get to certain places where you thought you'd never get. And it doesn't feel as rewarding as I thought it'd be when I got there. And it's some of the most successful times have been my loneliest times. And I just am curious about how you balance that work life piece
0: Oh gosh, yeah. How long do you have? That's so important, that question. <laughs> it's so rich. Yeah. I also find that to be the case. The very goal that drives the journey isn't actually as sweet as the process of arriving itself. You know, it's, it's the reach it, it's, that matters. It's, it's why I was so fascinated by the, the idea of mastery as opposed to success. in in writing about the rise, because success is just achievement. Mm. It's what the world confers upon you. It's not necessarily even how you see yourself, but mastery is that constant pursuit. And it means caring about that reach and that near win. The first time you you sense that or get a taste of that, it's it's confusing, you know, because we're we're somehow taught that um, the process isn't what counts as much as whatever gold medal equivalent is what you'll receive in your field. That somehow, I think I learned that young because of the compound grief, it, it just realigned meaning and, and life for me in, in a very profound way. You know, So because I, as I mentioned with Anna, you know, she had all the accolades almost in the world at that age of 23. I mean, she had, I was about to have three Harvard degrees at the age of and it didn't matter, Like right? None mm-hmm. of it mattered. What mattered was how she lived and who she was in companionship with and how she had inspired others. So it reminded me that the journey was what really uh, would count in the end. The work that I'm doing now though, yeah, it feels very much like, um, it's sort of forcing me to live on a mountain in a way, you know, (laughs) like constantly finding something to propel the reach. And it can feel a little bit like rare air, you know, because it's actually harder to push yourself (laughs) once you've achieved a certain level Mm. of success um, to do the work that you know is still in you. And it's also harder because you do receive more opportunities (laughs) that take you away from the very deep dive that you need to do to create more work. So it becomes this almost um, like body cloning question. How do I create more hands, time, hours, you know, to get it done? How do I do all this to also find the support that I need, right, from friends? And what I've basically found is this, we leverage time differently when we're in true alignment with our purpose Hmm. and with our joy. So we all have the same amount of hours in the day as Beyonce, they say, right? (laughs) 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 But, and if we do, the question is then how do you leverage that time? And I find that I can create within 60 seconds far more than I think that I can if I'm doing it with joy and with purpose, right? Mm. Not with the annoyance, the frustration that comes in when you're trying to manage too many things coming at you. So that's created, um, knowing that has created a set of, sort of rituals and practices that keep me in a state of flow so mm. that I can keep working at a, a kind of a, with a lot of momentum. Those rituals are you know, meditation, at the start of the day, other things to keep. <laughs> the house I'm in, the, the body I'm in, and, and shape, all that kind of thing is, is crucial for the day. But the balance is always a work in progress, but those are some of the ways that I, I try to keep it together.
1: Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Well said.
0: I don't know if any
1: of that made sense. <laughs> no, it did. Yeah. It's a lot yeah. of good stuff in there.
2: It's so loaded, and it's such... It's a constant... ever. I mean, like, it's an everyday working at yeah. thing. yeah. It's yeah. like you're getting to do all these things that you love and you feel so honored, but then you're like, and I'm exhausted and I don't have time for you know. Yeah, so like totally. finding that sweet balance, it's it's a constant striving to yeah. you yeah. know to stay centered and grounded and take care of yourself in the midst of the crazy. That's mm-hmm. it's just it's so important. Absolutely. For anything to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we love to do at the end is. Kind of going back to, like, little girl you, can you think of something that you wish that you could have heard or said to that little girl that you needed to hear but didn't necessarily hear it? Is there, like, a word or a sentiment that you'd want to give her? Oh, I love that. I think what I'd want to remind my
0: little girl self... (laughs) is to continue to, to follow the light, basically.
2: Mm.
0: And I say that because my first word actually was light. Wow. <laughs> wow. I still can't believe that was my first word, but it was. Mm. My mother tells the story of me literally pointing to this light in the house in Pennsylvania where they, they had um, a country place. And my mom turned around, she said, what did you say? <laughs> I said the word again, and I pointed to the light wow. to make sure she knew. I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Not mom or dad, but light. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like um, I, I knew, I knew then what we get trained to forget that that is all you're here to do, right? Mm. To find that, to be that, to, to remain inspired by that. Mm-hmm. And to forget everything else that doesn't allow for that,
1: basically, mm-hmm.
0: you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> simply put.
1: So um, as we close out here, are there any new projects that you want to talk about?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to continue to write. I have uh, a lot of books coming out in um, <laughs> 2019, and I'll continue to, to teach at Harvard. Um, the work I'm doing now really focuses squarely on the question of how the arts and culture in general have enlarged our notion of who counts and who belongs in society writing on on that is the work continuing to speak about that some fun media projects coming out about that um i'm thrilled
1: well i know i got an inside track because we're friends that i heard uh, a little bit and i, I know i can't say because you probably are under ndas and stuff but just uh pay attention to Dr. Sarah Lewis. Uh, you can find her on socials and on her website, but there is some really cool stuff coming out, as you said, media-wise, book-wise, speaking-wise, and just you know, continuing to teach from your heart. I just wanna say as we, as we close, and I wish we didn't have to, because I could keep talking to you all day, but I said in the beginning, I think your voice is really important. What I like about today is that sometimes people get known, and branded based on their extreme gifting. In your case it might be intellect or you know and it that's admirable. And yet there is more to you than your than what you know. There is this whole person that is heart, soul and and just really integrated and connected. And I've known that since we had the opportunity to sit together the first time it continues to get validated even all the way up to it feels like no time passed and here we sit again. I'm so thankful you took time with our audience to to share a little bit about who you are and what you're doing in this world. It's so important and so awesome, as are you.
2: Yes. Yeah. I feel so like much. we barely scratched the surface. There's, <laughs> I'm so... Yes. honored that we got to share this time with you today and I'm so excited to get to meet you and to know you and to follow along in your journey and just be cheerleading you all along the way and I'm excited to learn from you and just see the beautiful light that you are in the world. So thank you so much. This was such a gift.
0: Likewise, thank you both.
2: Really really an honor.
0: you both are incredible. Thank you. Make, up fake love, make them all laugh come on someone take off your
1: mask. It's nice to me.
2: Thank you guys so much for being here with us today. We know that your time is valuable, so it just means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot, and the song is called Alcatraz, and it is from their EP, Hallucinate, and I just cannot speak highly enough about these boys. They have a new record coming out soon, and you should check them out. They're amazing.
1: Definitely go get their music wherever you can get it. They are amazing, and you're going to love them as much as we do. If you want to learn more about The Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and information about the guests, And please follow us on Instagram at The Unspoken Podcast. We'd also love for you to subscribe to the podcast and help us spread the news and share this because we cannot wait to show you what's up next. And we will be with you all again soon.